0: Well, the Lord certainly um, bolstered two ailing voices this morning, David and Sarah, under the weather. But thank you very much for leading us in worship. I'm just so grateful for all of the people that serve us as well as the Lord on this platform every Sunday morning and lead us to the throne of the Lord. And that last song uh, certainly... (laughs) Prepares our hearts. Strip away everything that is of me, that is not of you, and lead me to you. And your fire, your holy fire, needs to do that. Well, we are talking about the spirit filled life this morning. Have you ever read the book, seen the play, watched the movie, Les Mis Rob? Have you ever seen that? Let me see the Les Mis fans in here. Okay, about. Just a little under half of you. If you have read the book, you are quite the man or the woman. I can tell you that. Any, let's see, any book readers in here? All right, several, quite a few. Men and women don't mess with the people that just raise their hand. That is, it's a book that's about that thick. It, it, it was written by Victor Hugo in 1862, and the setting is in <clears throat> early 19th century France, and it's in the midst of revolutionary times And the themes of revolution and redemption are quite prominent in this book. The two main characters are Jean Valjean and the officer, the police officer, Javert. As a young man, Valjean steals a loaf of bread to feed his starving sister and her family. He's caught, sent to prison for five years. that turn into 19 because he has tried to escape. After all of those years of hard labor... For stealing a loaf of bread. It's, it, it, those were the times. As you, you might imagine. I have an interest in Australia these days. And I, I've read this book about Australia. And you know it's populated by prisoners. But these were prisoners. Who did things like stealing 12 cucumber plants. And stealing a book about Barbados. You know I mean you did hard time. In, 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 um I may have told you this already. But in that period of England. You could, there were like 200 crimes that were worthy of capital punishment, one of which was impersonating an Egyptian. Get that, you could be put to death. You know, thank goodness they weren't, that law was not on the books when they were doing that walk like, the, like an Egyptian uh, not too many years ago. But it was the time, and, and 19 years he spent in hard labor, for stealing the loaf of bread to, to feed his sister and her children who were starving, so he refused uh, afterwards to to keep his parole well actually initially what happened was he went to the home of a bishop he, he was released into the um, under the custody of uh, officer Javert and ja- Valjean goes to this bishop 's home and he steals a bunch of silver and and hits the priest in the head and he's bleeding and the police catch uh, javert and bring him back and the and the bishop shows him instead of saying yes he's the one who stole my things he says brother you forgot something you forgot this bag of silver here this extraordinary act of kindness and mercy prompt valjean to be a different man he throws off the yellow parole badge goes underground And his life completely changes. He becomes a wonderful, giving, gracious, kind, and thoughtful man. He becomes quite successful. And his success, of course, opens him up to public scrutiny. And Javert catches up with him some eight, nine years later. Valjean barely escapes. And the rest of their lives, it's a... Game of cat and mouse with Javert right on the hills of Valjean. The law doggedly pursues a man who has indeed broken the law, but who has been freed from the slavery of bitterness and, ironically, lawlessness. Lawlessness. As I was thinking about this and preparing to share, if you've seen the Broadway play, you know, I've got all these songs running in my head, and so I'm liable to break out. I swear by the stars. Javert says, I am going, Lord, help me find this man and bring him to justice. Valjean is just going off doing good things. Well, years later, after the near capture of Valjean, Javert finds himself on the wrong side of a revolutionary band in Paris. And Jean Valjean has the opportunity to end this misery, this constant torture of looking over your shoulder, knowing that any moment may be your last moment of freedom. He can kill Javert. In fact, all he has to do is stand back and do nothing. But he speaks up and says, don't kill this man, spare his life. This juxtaposition of law and grace is too much for a man who cares about nothing but the law. He can't reconcile these different ways of looking at life in his mind. Not long after he's been freed, once again, Javert catches Valjean. And if you have not known the story, If you've seen the movie and you didn't know the story, you would think for all the world, Javert is getting ready to kill Valjani. He handcuffs him, he takes him down to the river in an isolated place, desolate place, gets him out, has a gun, uncuffs him, puts the cuffs on himself, and then falls back into the river committing suicide. Now, if you've seen the movie, Liam Neeson, who does a masterful job playing any role that he's ever in, is Jean Valjean. And he begins to walk away. After years and years and years of being pursued by the law for breaking one little law, he walks away, and it begins to the the gravity of the moment is all over his face, and the reality of his freedom begins to dawn on him. And I think about that expression over and over at certain times in my life. And it's the expression that was probably on the Apostle Paul's face when he's been in Romans 7 and he's wrestled with the law. And he's saying, all these things that God desires me to do, I can't do. I'm I'm incapable of doing. I mean, I have this incredible desire to do right. And he had said early in the chapter in Romans 7 that the law was dead to him. It was almost as if the law was Javert falling back into that river, committing suicide and freeing him from the consequences of the law. And yet, even as a Christian, he finds himself unable to live a life that's pleasing to God. Now, he's moving in to Romans 8. In Romans 7, Paul's fleshly efforts to keep the law were a disaster, and his failure nearly drove him crazy. He discovered, though, freedom from the consequences of law, but also freedom from the power of sin through the Holy Spirit of God. If you weren't here from last uh, for last week's message about Romans 7, please let me encourage you. I'm always I always feel funny about doing this to say hey go find that message somewhere listen to it online it's got CDs out there but the truth <coughs> of, of the struggle that we have in Romans 7 and and how we find victory in Romans 8 is so important in, and and how Romans 5 6 to 8 <clears throat> 5 6 7 and 8 are all connected and talk about how we grow spiritually in the Lord. So please find a way or write me and I'll send you a written copy of the message. In the briefest reviews, briefest of reviews of where we are, Romans 5 tells us that all of us are identified and connected with Adam because of our sin and our our relationship with him is constant for the rest of our lives. But the chapter also tells us that those who put their trust in Jesus, who have the faith that was called for in Romans chapter 4, Place their trust and faith in Jesus Christ, are now identified with Jesus as well as Adam. That identity in Christ is described in detail in Romans 6, where we're told that we have a choice not to sin. We're not slaves to sin. We can say no to sin. But Romans 7 reminds us that the flesh is still very much active in us. And in addition to being connected with Jesus Christians and Christ followers are still connected very much to Adam. And therefore, for me, a war is raging inside. Part of me very much wants to please God, and on the other hand, part of me very much wants to please myself, take care of myself, pamper myself. And I often find myself doing the very things that I hate. I hate them because of my new life in Christ. The Apostle Paul came to a place of near despair in Romans 7, 24, when he said, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of sin and failure and misery and death? And then he answers his own question in verse 25. and It gave him great hope for this life as well as the next. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Even though I sin with my flesh, my heart's, true heart's desire is to please the Lord. You know, we're going to be told in the latter part of Romans 8, we're not going there this morning, we're just going to the first 17 verses, but we're going to be told that there is such so much pain and misery in this life, but there is great hope at the end. And the first part of this This And and hope for now too. But in the first part of this chapter, we're going to find that hope is not only for the future, it is for now. We don't have to live as slaves to sin. Whatever that sin is, whether it's temptations to to do wicked things, whether it's attitudes, no matter what it is, we have victory over sin in Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit. We're going to break, as I said, this great chapter into two sessions. And the first session will be in these first 17 verses if you would please stand for the reading of God's word in Romans chapter 8 there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus for the law of the spirit of life has set you free from the law set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death For God has done what the law could not do, weakened by the flesh. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. in order that we may also be glorified with Him. Let's pray. Father, open our hearts to not only the truth of this word, but Lord, open us to the place that we yield to the Spirit of God, and this becomes not only theory, but reality for us that we find the means to the life that pleases you. May we not look within, but look to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks and be seated. The Holy Spirit, what do you think of when you hear His name? In the first place, do you even think of the Holy Spirit as a hymn? Or do you think of Him more as an it, some sort of mysterious power that is available to us, but not necessarily on our terms. We just kind of have to come at it the way that, well, He just does what He wants to, when He wants to, sort of like the picture of the Holy Spirit that you get in the the book The Shack that's just kind of ethereal and unknowing and you don't really have any control over Him. You know, the 21st century seems to make either too much, way too much, or way too little about the Holy Spirit. Now, we, we acknowledge the Holy Spirit as the third person of the Trinity, but we either we barely think of Him at all, or we exalt Him above the Father and the Son. We learned last year in our study of the Trinity that the Holy Spirit gladly accepts his role is the one who magnifies and glorifies the Son. He is God, same as the Father, same as the Son. He is worthy of our praise, our thought, our attention. But His role in the Trinity is to exalt the Son. He is absolutely god and worthy of our praise you know you'll recall that every single thing jesus did on this earth he did at the direction of the father and in the power of the spirit that's a great model for us we live exalting the name of jesus at the direction of the father according to his plan as we find in god's word and 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 all of this is done through the power of the holy spirit in chapters 5 to 8 of Romans, uh, we learn how life in Christ goes. And, and, and also, these chapters inform us of the secret of living well. And Romans 8 is the place where it all comes together. Now, interestingly, in the book of Romans to this point, in the first seven chapters, the Holy Spirit has barely been mentioned at all. Two times, in fact. Now, in Romans 8, the Holy Spirit is mentioned 20 times. All of a sudden, when everything comes together, the Holy Spirit is in the middle of us living lives that please the Lord. He's seen as our source of holy living, our source of holiness, our comforter, our assurance of a relationship with the Father, our helper in prayer, and ultimately the one who makes us more like Jesus. God's plan is to conform us more to the image of Jesus and the Holy Spirit is the one who gets that done. Is there a more comforting verse in all of Scripture than Romans 8.1? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Condemnation comes at us every day. I don't know about you. I would imagine that many of you are the same way. The, the, the bulk of my condemnation comes right here. It's me. Talking about. You shouldn't have done that. That was stupid. What do you what do you think? What? But there's plenty of condemnation to go around, and we sense so often when things are not going well, and especially when people are displeased with us, that God is displeased with us. Listen to this. There is therefore now no condemnation, no condemnation for those who were in Christ. Jesus, this, remember, after the tumultuous battle that was described in Romans 7. Oh, I hate doing these things, but I find myself doing them, and I want to please God, but I just can't, there's no way I can do that. That battle between the old man and the new man in Romans 7 is also described as the battle between the flesh and the spirit. We saw it in Galatians 5 last week. It's very clear in in Romans 7. Now, Paul says there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ. And furthermore, we have been set free from the law of sin and death by the Spirit of God who gives us life and, as we shall see, just a few verses, peace. Verses 3 and 4 are extremely important in helping us to understand how the life of a Christ follower works. We're incapable of keeping the law. That's check. We know that for sure. So God sent Jesus to do what we couldn't do. Why? In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. The righteous require Jesus fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law and this righteous righteous requirement in the law is fulfilled in us very important in the Greek it's in the passive voice which means it's not something we did it's something that was done for us he fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law in us now what does that mean does it mean that the righteous requirement of the law is met so that we can stand before God and get into heaven even though we don't deserve it because we've placed our trust in Jesus? Or does it mean that He actually enables us to keep the law of God and to meet the righteous requirement of the law of God? What does it mean? Well, is this so often in the case in Scripture? The answer is yes. It's both. We stand before God because of Jesus and we live a life, finally, that fulfills His plan all the way through us. Because of Jesus living in us. We do not keep the law in order to be, to be saved. But we keep the law because we are saved. Because we are saved, we keep the law. God not only made a way for us to stand accepted before Him, but He also made a way for us to walk in a manner that's pleasing to Him. He made this, this life possible. Now, look, there, there are plenty of times where Romans 7 is going to rear its head. But Romans 8 is a definite possibility where the righteous requirement of the law is being fulfilled in us. That's the gospel. How is it possible to please the Lord with the image of Adam still stamped indelibly on our souls? And it's possible because in addition to To Adam, Jesus, the image of Jesus is stamped on our hearts. And Jesus never sinned. In fact, Jesus fulfilled the law in every single point. And He is in us, and we are connected with Him. We're identified with Him. Consider these stunning, stunning verses. They amaze me every time I read them. In in 2 Peter 1, 3 and 4. His divine power has granted to us... All things that pertain to life and godliness. Not only eternal life, but godly living now. Through the knowledge of Him, who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He is granted to us in His precious and very great promises. The knowledge of Him, His great and precious promises in His Word. So that through them, you may become partakers of the divine nature. That blows my mind. I don't get that. We are becoming partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Partakers of the divine nature. That doesn't mean that we become gods but that we become more like Jesus because we bear His image in our souls and the Holy Spirit of God enables us to live the same way Jesus lived, the same way the Holy Spirit enabled Him to live. That power lives in us and that in the person of, of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so we have, we have the struggle between the flesh and the Spirit constantly raging in our hearts and minds. We were told last week that the law is dead to us, just like Javert went over <laughs> committing suicide. The law is dead to us, and we are free to serve Jesus. But we also learned last week that it doesn't mean that we're, no, we're free to do anything that we want. No, we're just enslaved to Jesus. And, this, and Jesus is fulfilling the righteous requirement of the law in us. How do we move from the internal battle of the flesh and the mind, which is really the the spirit-filled life um, that's found in Romans 8? When he's talking about the mind, with my mind I serve the law of God, with my flesh the law of sin. And the mind in Romans 7 is really talking about the spirit. The key is in verse 8. Excuse me, in verses 5 to 8, the battle for spirituality begins and proceeds from our mind. Now, here in Romans 8, Paul says that the mind that is set on the flesh leads to death, but the mind that is set on the spirit will end in peace and life, life and peace. Wouldn't you like peace of mind? I know that some of you are blissfully free from inner turmoil, either because of the way that you're natured or because of your trust in the Lord. You're just 100% trust in the Lord. Most of us aren't natured that way, and it's not natural for us to just trust the Lord. And we find ourselves in turmoil all the time. And often our troubled spirits are a result of fleshly thinking, even if our fleshly thoughts our religious ones. Hey, it is such it is such a temptation once we become Christians to either move toward legalism once again, getting all wrapped up in the law, and then we become self-righteous. Or to move toward liberty where, hey, I'm free. I'm free from, from the consequences of law so I can live any way I want to live. Ditches on both sides, and and it's difficult to stay on that narrow road that is leading to the narrow gate. Listen to what John Stott says about the importance of controlling our thoughts. Quote Now, to set the mind upon the flesh or the spirit means to occupy ourselves with the things of the flesh or the spirit. Remember, the things of the flesh. I mean, it can be either one. And we are all prone to either end. And sometimes when we spend a lot of time over here, we find ourselves over here, shockingly, over in the other side and vice versa. We clean up our act a little bit, and then, what's wrong with you? You can't clean your act up. So the things of the flesh don't just have to be wicked, evil desires. They can be self-righteous thoughts about our own goodness. And I can tell you, I struggle on both ends. I struggle on both ends. Thoughts about doing things that just, I can't believe these thoughts were in my mind. Where did these come from? I thought I was past that. But over here, bowing up. Wanting to think, I'm better than other people. So, to set the mind upon the flesh or the spirit means to occupy ourselves with the things of the flesh or the spirit. It is a question of our preoccupations. The ambitions which compel us. And the interest which engross us. How we spend our time, money, and energy. What we give ourselves up to, that is what we set our minds on, close quote. And what we set our minds on will determine whether we are controlled by the flesh or the Spirit. It'd be a good time to clarify a couple of things. In verses 7 to 8, it's pretty clear that a person who is consistently dominated by the flesh is not a believer. And that notion is confirmed in the following verses as well. But but this is referring to a person who doesn't care at all about the things of God. Because God doesn't live in him. In the persons of the Son and the Holy Spirit. Furthermore, while it seems clear that a Christ follower will become more and more like the man or woman in Romans 8 we will never be completely done with Romans 7 there is always going to be this conflict inside of us and the struggle with sin and the struggle to please God that battle between Adam and Jesus is going to rage on and the battle will be more intense at certain periods of our lives than at other times but the battle never ends. But, but you've got to know this. This is what Romans 8, 1, that there's no condemnation of those who are in Christ Jesus. The war is won, but battles are still going on. But the war is won for the Christ follower. There is hope that we will become more and more like Jesus of the new life that is constantly being refreshed in us by the Holy Spirit. We are not fully dominated by the flesh if the Spirit of God dwells in us. The Holy Spirit comes to live in us when we trust Jesus' death on the cross as payment for our sins. You ever had anyone ask you, are you a Christian? Yes. Have you you received the Holy Spirit? What do you mean? I, I, I think I answered that with the first question. If I am a Christian, I have received The Holy Spirit, if any man does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Him. We don't belong to the Lord if the Holy Spirit is not in us. And since the Holy Spirit does live in us, the same power is available to us that raised Jesus from the dead. Death and life, one of the themes of Romans 8. The more we concede to the flesh, the more we give in to sinful passions, the more we die. It's just that simple. The more we yield to the flesh, the more we die. At the same time, the more we yield to the Spirit of God in our lives, the more we live just like Jean Valjean is. He's walking away from this scene where his nemesis has killed himself and the law is now dead to him and the reality of freedom begins to overtake him. That, that's the way it is with us as we begin to walk in the Spirit. A lot of people walk away from natural restrictions, God, restrictions that God has put in place like parents or, or like marriage vows and, and they, they think, finally I'm free. I'm no longer under the thumb of this law, this person who has made my life miserable. And I can do anything that I want to. To walk anywhere in the flesh is to walk toward death. Think about it. To walk anywhere in the flesh is to walk toward death. To walk in the spirit away from sin is to walk toward life. And notice we are to actively seek to put the the flesh to death. We have an obligation, in fact, to walk in the Spirit. In other words, wherever we find sin in our lives, we're to deal with it radically. Confess it. Repent of it. Put barriers up to keep us from falling into that sin again. Walk away from it. In other words, put sin to death. As we find it. You know what your weaknesses are. And you know what gets you into trouble. Deal with that. Put it to death through the power of the Holy Spirit. The problem for us is it's it's not the weaknesses that, that really shock us when, when our weaknesses come at us, temptations come at us. We understand that. We expect that. What's really tough is when we are attacked in our strengths. We think, I I can't believe I did that. I would have never done that. How did that happen? It's all of the flesh when we are serving ourselves, and it's all of the Spirit when we're serving the Lord. It is a contradiction for the Christ follower to live as though he or she has no relationship with the Lord. Ruin, redemption, redemption relationship. That's the cycle of the gospel. To be a Christ follower is to enjoy, to enjoy a unique relationship with the Father. To believe the gospel is to be brought into the family of God where we cry, Abba, Father. Now, I know you want Abba to mean Daddy or Papa. I'm sorry, it just doesn't mean that. It means Father. It's actually a term of respect In the Aramaic, but it is definitely a unique relationship. I'm certain that the words of the Lord in Gethsemane where Jesus cried out, Abba, Father, were on Paul's heart and mind when he said, this is what we cry because of the spirit that lives in us. We enjoy this special relationship with the father because we've been adopted into his family. Adoption was far different in the first century than it, Roman Empire than it is today. Uh, adults were often adopted by the wealthy to be brought into uh, line for an inheritance. Sometimes emperors would adopt their successors or the ones that they intended to be their Successors, And so it's a big deal that Paul says we are adopted and have become fellow heirs with Christ. Although our inheritance may not seem to be all that great if we have a short-term view of the gospel. Following Jesus will involve suffering because of sin in this world. Not our own sin necessarily, but the sin of others and just the creation that groans we're going to talk about next week. Because of sin. But sin need not dominate our personal lives. In fact, suffering, especially suffering for the right reasons and in the right way, brings us closer to God's glory. And verse 17 sets us up for the last half of Romans 8, which we are going to be blessed to enjoy next Sunday morning. This morning, though, we're going to close with a prayer from Ray Ortland Jr. written in response to our text. And then Drew is going to come and lead us as we gather at the Lord's table. Father in heaven, I want to learn what it means to mortify the deeds of the flesh by the power of the Spirit. I want to live. I want to live as a child of God. I want Spirit-empowered destruction of sin along with new holiness of life in deep personal communion with you. Blessed Holy Spirit, lead me along step by step into these experiences, whatever it takes. Lead this generation of your church there as well, O Lord, for we are being overwhelmed with the tidal wave of sin here in the modern world. Spirit given holiness, Lord, flood your church with an renewal of a spirit-given holiness today. In the holy name of Christ. Amen.